You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. This is our first collaboration with At War Talks, and today we bring you Zabina Maguire, who's discussing Russian disinformation in the V4. It's not as bad as you think, it's far worse. But before we start, please don't forget to rate our podcasts and give us plenty of feedback. It all helps. Tonight's speaker, Zabina, um, I'm not going to give you too much of a uh, intro because I want you to introduce yourself. Um, but Zabina is uh, going to speak tonight on the role of disinformation on NATO's eastern flank. So, Zabina. Hello everyone. Barney told me that you're going to be a nice audience, so please be really nice with me tonight. Um, First of all, I have to tell you that English is my third language, so if I stumble and you don't understand me, I'm pretty, pretty sorry about it. Just ask afterwards that if you understood me correctly. Um, So my name is Sabina Maguire, and um, I'm ex-diplomat from Hungary. Uh, my specialization is the post-Soviet region, and I worked with the post-Soviet region for about six years as a diplomat. And obviously, uh, I worked with the Central Eastern European countries as well, just as Slovakia, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary. I represented Hungary. And today, I'm going to talk about um, the Eastern flank which is, I think, in your understanding, probably is Estonia, maybe Poland, and probably the Balkans as well. So tonight, I'm not going to talk about this, because probably some of you know quite well what's going on in the Baltics. Probably some of you know quite well what's going on in the Balkans. So I don't want to introduce you to this region, because uh, the British military is already there. I would like to talk about... Uh, the so-called Visegrad countries, the countries I already introduced you, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and Poland. Um, This is an interesting topic because there is no Russian minority in in this region, but Russia is really, really present in every other level, like in politics and economy. And uh, I think I would just like to introduce you some kind of uh, awareness raising here. I hope I'm going to do that right once. So... Today, the takeaways I would like to give you and I would like to introduce you are going to be the next three ones. I think the situation is not as bad as you think. It's a lot worse. The second one is uh, actually the Putin fanboys. I put up a couple of photos of uh, the presidents and uh, prime ministers of the region. And that's Putin himself in the background. And Putin fanboys, uh, which is basically those guys of whom Russia is building a circle of really, really strong relationships with. And the third one is going to be that some regional political actors are not doing it just because they are they have no awareness or they don't know what they are doing. They are really well aware of what they are doing. It's a conscious decision to spread Russian narrative in these societies on the local politician side. Um, the structure is going to be, well, I, I don't know you, so I think it's fair to give a brief introduction of the general framework, just to get us in the same page that what we are talking about. Uh, the second part is going to be the Russian narratives in the V4 region, the Visegrad four countries. So you will see that, how is it a bit different than a little region? 
and the third one is going to be a political landscape in, in these countries. I'm going to tell you a couple of examples just to let you know, just to let you into the room how Russia is actually doing their stuff in the countries. So let's start. Uh, general framework. So the first one is, um, let's just start with cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a pretty new notion. It appeared at the uh, end of the uh, Cold War era, at the beginning of the Cold War era, so we are talking about the third year of the notion. Um, it is basically a threat to the society which is coming from the technology. It's a technology-based um, uh, threat. There are two research fields in this area. One is social media and the other one is the vulnerability of critical infrastructures. Today, obviously, I'm going to talk about the social media itself. I'm 100% certain that all of you are using some kind of social media. In the last couple of days, plenty of us searched about Game of Thrones facts, obviously. Some of you probably checked the memes from my husband. I know that this weekend was cars and battleships were trending in this community. I don't know about the details, but he told me that. And um, there are loads of other things we are searching on uh, social media news, etc., etc. But it's also a pretty perfect place where we can pick up fake news and disinformation and every other stuff. For example, during the US elections or the elections in France, Russia created with these disinformation uh, methodologies on these social media. There are things like bots, trolls, fake news, hate campaigns. These are the most popular tools in, this, in these media campaigns. Uh, we need to clarify another notion, which is fake news and disinformation. What's the difference between... Oh, I didn't kick anything. You don't see something? Just wave me away, okay? Uh, so, uh, disinformation and fake news. Uh, fake news, the easiest way I can say, not all, uh, uh, sorry, not all fake news is disinformation, but not all disinformation is fake news. Disinformation is a lot broader notion. We also mean the distorted reality uh, of it, not just something of a bit distorted of the news. Uh, the Russian disinformation's aim is to manipulate, to undermine trust, and to question credibility. Just because they would like to question the Western values, and they would like to question the Western unity. So this can be considered, and it is started to be considered basically everywhere around the world, as a security threat to the community, to the society. Um, the term of fake news appeared with basically Donald Trump. Uh, he's been on fake news all the time, he's criticizing news all the time. There are a couple of types of fake news. Um, for example, one is when uh, there is some kind of uh, false connection. You can see an example of false connection here, where you can see a photo, which is probably uh, taken by an opioid crisis uh, victim, and some kind of headline about marijuana. Probably the two are not connected, but in this news, they are. Another one is a satire or parody site. For example, this is this one from Nigel Farage, who apparently died of a milkshake attack wounds, uh, is from onion.com. And there is a total fabricated content, which is everything just like not true. Not the content, not the headline, not the photo. Russia is the primary source at this moment for disinformation and fake news. 
It means that from 2014, uh, from the annexation of Crimea, Russia is just pushing these effects, distorted facts out of itself. Um, the aim is to create a block in the eastern flank, which I'm talking about, uh, of people uh, who are the Putin fanboys, I just showed you before. Uh, and it's also an aim to create a deeper rift in the Euro-Atlantic uh, alliance. Uh, Russia operates with uh, these tools, um, playing on existing uncertainty is the first one. It is basically that you know that the news you see is already justified by some kind of reliable source, but there are some gray areas here and there. And this is the gray area where Russia is going to just drop down false information. It doesn't want to do you to, to change your mind. It just wants you to question everything you know about this. It starts to create a distorted conversation about a certain topic, and this is fine enough. The second one is, I would call, not an informational war, but a war on information. It's basically when you don't know what to believe in a certain situation. You hear information from here, from there, and you have no idea what to believe in. And Russia, again, starts to come and push some fake news in this, and you start to question more and more and more. This is basically how it builds up some suspicion about information about what's happening. And the third one is the so-called multiple contradictory narrative. It explains a situation that feels to you uh, the moment when you can feel that you're right. We all know that when we read the news and it just says exactly what you thought about it. Yes, you're right. And it, Russia targets certain groups in the society with these exact elements of news and these narratives. So every element and every group can feel that they are right. Um, the Russian narratives in the V4 countries um, are my second topic. So it is, there is a massive difference how Russia is operating, for example, in the United States or in the European Union, and how it operates in the V4 region, so in Poland, Czech, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. Um, there is a, stretch, a strategy behind it, and it was, it has been since 2014, the annexation of Crimea. And it is to decentralize the system and to create as many social media platforms and as many social media uh, players as it can. The system is diverse in its ideology. It picks up from the far right to the far left, uh, but the only common thing it is in it in it's that it combines anti-globalist and anti-Western ideology. The network has connections to uh, pro-Russian far-right movements and parties, paramilitary organizations, there are loads of, by the way, in this region, for paramilitary organizations, and it connects even with Russian uh, intelligence services as well. And the Russian influence, by the way, in the region operates uh, throughout, through loads of actors coming from politics, coming from economy. You would think that after the history we have with Russia in this region, after living under the communist era for 40, 50 years, we would say that, no, thank you, we don't need Russia. It was enough for us. But actually, 
Russia is still there through economic ties, political ties, energy, for example, the most important tool in Russia's hands to manipulate this region is energy, and Russia is still there. The other factor that how Russia can operate so well is that because the United States has no interest anymore in this region. It's pretty, it's pretty sad to say from my side, but it is also true. It was really interesting. We were really interesting back in the beginning of the 90s, back in the middle of the 90s. But then the United States started to shift to a different foreign policy and now it's concentrating more in the Southeast Asian region than into the Central Eastern European region. So, uh, Russia is really good in targeting messages and operating with different narratives uh, specified to, to the locals. So, there is no such as, a, there is such as a big narrative for Russia, which is basically questioning the West, but there are some narratives which are helpful to manipulate the exact countries where it's operating. Uh, for example, in the V4 uh, region, there are three of them. The first is called the end of liberal democracy. It's really picturesque, so you can probably understand what it means. The liberal democracy as a state, as, as a mindset, is not for these countries. We should push some kind of national narrative, and we should think about ourselves, and the country has different interests than the West, than, than the United States, than, for example, the United Kingdom, Kingdom or Germany. Um, the one thing that is really good at it, that it plays, the Russian narrative already plays existing prejudices which are there in the society. There are, for example, conspiracy theories of Jewish uh, businessmen. I don't know if you recognize the gentleman. He is George Soros. Anybody heard about him? Some of them you did, and some of them you know that he's related to the 92 Bank of England crash, right? The so-called Bank Wednesday, if it, is, if it is true or not, it can be also just a conspiracy theory, by the way. These are not just random photos I put together. This is actually the Hungarian government's campaign from last year's elections. Um, on the right, it says Soros George Soros would just uh, get millions from Africa, Africa and uh, the Middle East to Europe. This is an actual running campaign. It was everywhere in Hungary. Everywhere. And this is also a Russian narrative, right? It's just playing right in the subconscious of the uh, society. A Jewish conspiracy. Sorry, that's yeah. interest. Was your authority organization aware of this and was it not considered liable from his organizational point of view and therefore legal challenge? Um, so, George Soros has a so called um, Open Society Institute think tank which is operating all around the globe, including Hungary. He's also behind the Central Eastern European University. He's been pushing loads of tons of money into these projects. Obviously, there are some elements which you can consider from a, a certain aspect or point of view that, yes, he is pushing an agenda which is not necessarily good for certain societies, or it's too liberal, or it's too much. I can say that, yes. But attacking a businessman in a country campaign 
just to win elections. That's a different type of uh, reality, I think. But he didn't fight back. Um, he was really subtle in that. He didn't fight back at all. He started. He's trying to push behind to pull to put pull himself behind, not to be out in front. But we can talk about it later. How 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 he operates and how is he doing things? Okay, let's back. Um, there is another narrative. Probably you are familiar with this one. Um, Russell is the big bad guy. Um, I'm not saying that uh, the UK and uh, the Brexit is because of this Russian, Russian narrative, but I probably you all know that during the 2016 campaign, Russian bots were everywhere on the internet and Facebook and everywhere around. So they did some really good job there. Um, and yes, and the third one, I will try to, yes, read back. So the second one is the West exploits the weaker countries. This is the least believable, by the way, because it says that uh, the Western countries during the transition period just came in and they used the leverages and the resources of the weaker countries for their own good. It's not true because financial numbers, you just can't lie about those. Of course, the countries are a lot better with Western money and with Western uh, respect than it used, they used to be. The third one is called the Slavic Brotherhood. Those who are familiar with the Balkan states probably know that Russia really likes Serbia, Serbia really likes Russia. So this is the basis for it. The so-called Slavic Brotherhood, we are from one blood, we, are, we know each other, we are in the same religion, we speak, we speak similar languages, etc. In this region, they can operate with this one in Slovakia and Slovakia only. But they do it really well. Okay, you said already, George. Uh, we arrive to the third part of this whole conversation is the political landscape. I'm trying to not to bore you with this because I can talk about Hungary and Poland for hours and hours, so I try to cut it short and just to concentrate on the real, the real stuff. So, as I already told you, the Central Eastern European countries are really ideal for Russia because there are plenty of pro-Russian figures operating around these countries. Um, Russia also really good in picking one politician and uh, endorsing it in these countries. There is also always a strong man who is favorable for Russia. Always a man, by the way. Um, and. Why is it so important? Because the V4 countries, and I'm going to add Austria here for a second, and, and I'm going to tell you in a second why. So Austria plays a really important role to stabilize this eastern flank. You can imagine that we have neighbors just like Ukraine or Russia itself. You can see the map. So if you are not stable, if you are starting to deteriorate to Russia, what can happen? Not good, right? You can see that it's not really a good thing. So I'm talking about Austria because there was a scandal this weekend. I don't know whether you heard about it or not. The vice chancellor needed to step down because apparently in 2017 in Ibiza, he met with a Russian businesswoman who claimed herself to be related to a really famous Russian businessman. Uh, apparently, Russia is denying this, or the businessman is denying this, and he wanted to give her some money 
to buy uh, a local and Austrian breast uh, conglomerate. From that moment on, to start spreading news that is favorable, favorable for this party. The party is, by the way, a far right party called FPO. And uh, there is a video leaking about this. The businesswoman's uh, idea was just okay, she can do that if they're gonna get some uh, procurement deals on the, the table. And of course, it was a massive scandal in Austria. Of course, there is a Russian businesswoman because there always a Russian businesswoman who is trying to bribe you in and get you into some kind of really shady business. And uh, he needed to step down and the whole government needed to step down. So there is one line, one, one, one line of Russians already there. And the second is uh, that the lady stated that she is related to Russian businessmen. And this is how the Russian narrative is working, that they can already state from the Russian side that no, we have no idea who is this lady. Of course they know. Um, so we need to talk about a bit of illiberal democracies. I don't know whether you ever heard this or not. Um, this is a phrase that uh, Viktor Orban came up with in 2015. Viktor Orban is my prime minister. And uh, he came up with this uh, phrase in 2015 during a speech calling Hungary an illiberal democracy which basically means that we are okay being a democracy, but we are not okay being liberal. So, just somewhere in between. And to be fair, it is somewhere in between, but not between liberal and illiberal democracy, it's somewhere in between autocracy and democracy. And that's the problem, because it also means that uh, how the press and how the information is handled in this country and in these countries, because Poland is also becoming an illiberal democracy, it's entirely different than how you uh, deal with information in the United Kingdom. Here is basically everything is pretty transparent. You know what's going on, you have the right agencies, you have the right departments and ministries, you know what you are doing. Um, in Hungary or in Poland or in everywhere in the region, this is entirely different. We don't know how things are happening. For example, I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, I was working in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Hungary and one day I went in and my uh, computer was not on my desk. It just disappeared. And I was asking around in the, uh, from the secretary ladies that, what happened? Nobody knew. A day later I got back my computer and eventually it turned out that somehow I got a Russian virus on my computer. A hacking one. And that was it. I've never got any instruction how to handle the situation. I've never got any instruction what to do with the emails. And I've never got anything back. This was just an information told me that, oh, by the way, there was a Russian virus on your computer. Oh, really? Can you imagine this in your environment that you just got, got back an information like this that, oh, by the way, never mind, you just got a Russian, Russian hacking virus on your computer. I don't think so that it can happen with you, by the way. So um, this, is, this is why it's really, really a scary thing to think about that how information is handled in these countries and that basically through, through NATO we are sharing similar information. So what can be leaked and what can be 
stored, it's, um, it can be really scary, right? Um, though this information appears as a notion in every security strategy in these countries, that doesn't mean that we also know how to handle this problem. Uh, for example, in Hungary, we don't even know that uh, disinformation is something we need to take seriously or not. It's kind of listed, but that's it. Um, okay, let's talk about a bit of the countries. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna tell every, uh, I'm not gonna explain every country because it's gonna take ages and ages. I'm going to tell you two examples how Russian information is basically working in this in this region. I'm sorry, it's a bit time, right? <laughs> if you want to get closer, just come. So, Poland is uh, historically not not that in such a good relation with Russia as the other countries countries in the region. Um, the society is well aware of the Russian threat. They are trying to uh, be ready and of course they are trying to be as resilient as possible. Um, but in 2000, after 2014, some Russian narratives appeared in the society which are still there and which are still alive. Uh, the thing is that Ukraine and Poland has a bit of a um, if I put it really nicely, between uh, between them between themselves about a certain massacre happened during the Second World War. Loads of Polish citizens died. Uh, the Ukrainian white army just simply killed them. And uh, well, this information just appeared, started to appear on the web, on the on Facebook sites. Then what Polish people are thinking about this? Now that Ukraine is in trouble, should we help them? Should we not help them? Have to think about it. And it became such a big thing that in 2017, basically the government started to send letters to each other. It was a Russian sub-narrative that got into the minds of the Polish people first, then to the Polish government secondly. And then it became more and more and bigger and bigger up until the government needed to do something about it. So however resilient as a society, however well you know what's, what you're facing, there still can be a tiny little leak when Russia just sneaks in and just drops down the right information. This is how it started. By the way, it's still not solved. It's still a problem. Um, the other one I'm going to talk about, obviously, is Hungary, my home country, because uh, because it's really close to my uh, my heart. Um, this is the Polish Ukrainian quarrel, by the way. Um, there are two examples I would like to tell you about Hungary. One one is uh, the so-called Gorovsky case. Last uh, year. In 2018, November, Gretzky is the ex-Macedonian prime minister. He is a convicted criminal by his own country. He was facing a jail time and he thought that this is not really good. So in 2018, November, he just uh, appeared from one second to another in Budapest. Apparently, it turned out that uh, he left the country on foot. He went to Albania. And at the other side of the border, we are still talking about convicted criminals, by the way. And the other side of the border, 
clear ambiguous related question with a diplomat card. I don't know if you are familiar with international law of life. We are not really helping convicted criminals fleeing a country, your country, and helping them to arrive by a diplomatic car to Budapest, right? It's not really a thing. And uh, where is Russia in this whole story? I'm trying to be as quick as possible. Uh, that is the box 2 plant, energy plant, which Russia has a deal to build with Hungary in the next couple of years. We managed to get a loan from the Russian state for this, as big as, well, actually nobody knows how big it is because documents are not available. Um, the day Gresky arrived, he is also a pro-Russian figure in the Balkan states. He's uh, very well suited and uh, he was a really good friend of Putin until he well, got sacked and convicted of uh, uh, some kind of, I don't know, felony. Um, so on the day he arrived to Budapest and he got asylum, uh, we also were hungry, the Hungarian government also uh, stated, gave a statement that Fox 2, Fox 2, Fox 2 is not going to be built in, this, in the future, in the close future. Why is it important? Because Hungary is trying to get out of this loan. And this was the deal behind it. If we get Kurevsky out for Mr. Putin, we can get out of the deal for a certain amount of time. I just wanted to tell you this story because now you can see, you can connect the dots how people, how politicians are operating in this whole matter, how countries are manipulated and how politicians are manipulating certain situations. The second one, the second example is actually a Russian uh, narrative. Uh, after the plane crashing, crash in Ukraine, uh, this gentleman, Jörn Obradi, appeared in the Russian, uh, Russian, the Hungarian uh, state television and started to say the same stuff as uh, the Kremlin said, nobody knows who did it, nobody knows what happened. It can be either the Ukrainian side or it could have happened that uh, the separatists shot, that, uh, shot the plane down, nobody knows exactly and we will never know. This was a clear Russian narrative coming from a gentleman who is well noted in Hungary on the Hungarian state television. Can you just see that in BBC somebody appears and start to tell you that Russia is a good guy and it has nothing to do, for example, I don't know, the Salisbury incident? Can it happen here? Oh my god, don't tell don't start to Jeremy Corby, please. Um, Actually, I'm kind of finished. If you don't mind, I will try to play a video in a couple of seconds. I just don't know how. Um, and I'm ready for your questions. Just start shooting. What sort of resources is the Russian state putting into disinformation? Numbers of people it's a really tough question and uh, well in this region I would say that uh, since it has government sides government politicians in their side they don't really need to put, put that much of an effort then for example in the United Kingdom they do need to so uh, 
they're working with uh, different economic ties and different, um, how can I say, businesses throughout the region and not necessarily the classic bots and falls and they don't need to operate with those. Uh, they are, uh, Russia is in really good terms with far-right movements in the region, uh, far-right parties. They are everywhere. Um, they are backing those with money, not necessarily the classic classic troll factory in St. Petersburg. These are well enough. These are good enough. So not that massive amount of money we're talking about in this matter. In in the classic like paycheck that I need to pay, I don't know, Sergei Ivanov to just start to play with the Hungarian websites and no businesses, businesses and economic ties. This is the main main factor how politicians can be bought. Okay, thank you. Go ahead. I don't know. Maybe I will ask for some technical help. Yeah. Oh. Yes. I will play you this one because is there what is there sound? We don't have sound, right? Oh. Then I'm not playing it. <laughs> That's it. Yes. So, uh, a bit away from the disinformation and more tied in with the, the power stations that we've got there in Hungary, how much more uh, are we seeing of the Russian uh, use of economic lending and, and development in and around those big four countries? Um, so, the Russian investment bank just um, moved to Budapest. The Russian Investment Bank is also the cover agency for uh, Intel Services, Russian Intel Services. I know I'm not answering this question, but I just wanted to tell you this information because it's just interesting. Um, what other economic ties Russia is moving besides, besides energy? Um, well, energy is not enough. Like the power plant is not enough. It is. It is a massive loan, by the way. No, no, I, 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 I kind of see how they've tied Hungary up there, but with the other four countries. Other way four countries. Uh, in the Czech Republic, the president, President Zeman, is in really good terms with Putin. He is basically friend, friends with Putin, and he was the first one who was really outspoken about uh, how the sanctions not should be uh, introduced against Russia and how Russia is not present in, the U in Ukraine and there are no green men and this is all just made up. And um, why he's in such a good terms with him? Because uh, they're in good terms in business relations. Every time President Zim is visiting Putin in, Kremlin, in the Kremlin, he also brings himself a large amount of Czech politicians and Czech business, businessmen just to deal with, uh, with the Russians so Russia is everywhere in that matter. In Slovakia just as well. It's not a difference, by the way. So but yeah, Hungary is the, the most tied up in this matter. We are the most most closest. But yeah. Uh given that um given the cultural connections between the region and Russia, mm -hmm. um one of the things that, uh, that that we've been looking at is is this idea of Rania. The Russians know that they're lying. Yes. We know that they're lying. Yes. And they know that we know that yes. they're lying. Because we don't understand that culturally, 
we kind of accept things at, at, at face value. Um, the denial of the Salisbury attacks, the denying of the shooting down of MH17. Given the cultural connections between the Slavic Brotherhood, do they see through that Vranya uh, and, 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 and are more willing to question Putin's official accounts? Yes and no, but mostly I would say no. No, they don't want to see through because uh, this is a different level of morality that they are connected in. I don't know whether you read Dugin. If you if you didn't, then please never, because it's really boring and it's, he's horrible. Uh, but he's the most he's the most important ideologist uh, for the Kremlin, as as it's stated. But by the way, who knows? Because it just said that he's the most important ideologist, and he came up with uh, this idea that Russia should lead the whole Slavic Brotherhood, and Russia should come came come up with with this uh, tactique and be because of spirituality, because of uh, we, are, we are really brothers and uh, we are connected throughout religion and we are coming from the same circles and we don't belong to Europe, we belong to Asia and all the other stuff. So those who believe in this, by the way, not many, because in every society there are those who believe and there are those who don't, obviously. I, I would say that those who believe in this, yes, they do, full-heartedly, and they do believe that Russia is going to be the savior and the West is not the right choice and we shouldn't come close to the West. Um, for the politicians, that's a different question. It's obvious it's a, it's a power-grabbing strategy. Russia is helping them with money, with infrastructure, endorsing them. They are there. And as you can see from the Kurevsky example, even when they are in the, I'm sorry for my language, deep shit, Russia is still going to hold their hands and they are still going to have that little way out from the situation with the help of the Hungarian Prime Minister, for example. So, yes and no. This is why yes and no. <laughs> you mentioned that you thought Putin was targeting some of the um, uh, fanboys, as it were, with disinformation. Yeah. But at the same time, they seem to be in on it and knowing what's happening and yes, exactly. using them. Yeah. To what extent is, are they being misinformed? To what extent do you think they know what they're doing? Um, that they're realigning their countries? I would say, trying to realign their countries? I would say from my experience how... What I, what I saw working in ministries and working in the foreign ministry, um, most of... Uh, most of the politicians are not that well aware. So there is a certain circle, which I would say that yes, they know and they consciously know what they are doing. But those who are the masterminds behind the charge, the advertisement, they obviously know what they are doing because this is not something that you just come up with. This is really a, a far right rhetoric we are facing here. They knew what they were doing, but uh, there is there is a level who know what's happening and consciously contributing into this and helping and uh, spreading and everything you to, just to help out. And there is a level, a sub-level, who are just either stupid or just want to shut their eyes and want to do away. Um, is Russia trying to use misinformation on the other wars? Uh, there's a talk of probably a couple months ago now on Iran and 
sort of then feeding, looking towards either Russia or China for sort of backup in the area to kind of look for power to get themselves to be more dominant in that region. Um, is, is Russia pushing misinformation out that direction as well? Is it purely only towards Europe and the, the old Soviet countries, so to speak? Good luck with China, by the way. <laughs> That's going to be a tough one. Uh, but uh, in the case of Iran, yes. So in the I would say in the Middle East. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily say Iran. I would say the Middle East. Yes. Okay. Yeah. China is a tough one, and uh, as you can see in the last couple of couple of years, uh, Russia is trying to get closer to China and not get away from China, because um, somehow I don't know. During the 60s, 70s, they thought that China is the bad guy now, it's turning around, so who knows where it's going to happen. Anyone else? Russia seems quite good at legitimising some of its bits and misinformation, so looking at some of the stuff in the UK with the Russian ambassador, uh, do you think that's a concerted effort to organise this messaging, or is it just people have that, or Russia has that approach with regards to it? No, it's organised. It's absolutely organized. It's it's not a random thing. They're they're they know pretty well what they're doing, especially in the Russian MFA, they they are pretty professionals trained in the old areas and they they know what they're doing. The Russian ambassador here, I just checked I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I don't know why I was looking for information and I checked the website of the Russian embassy in the UK. It's just fascinating. <laughs> That that really short message that we are terribly sorry that the UK chose this path, but and then we obviously disagree. And uh, if you try to change your mind, feel free. We are here, but we didn't do anything wrong. So yeah, that they know what they are doing. So we saw uh, Victor Orban turn up in the White House. Recently. Oh, he did, yeah. Yeah, is is that an attempt by him and Nigeria to play both sides up against each other, or was it? some other um, less obvious uh, tactic? So, during the Obama administration, we obviously had a pretty poor relation with the United States. It was the phrase line that in the economic and uh, military uh, region, we are in really good terms with the Americans, but unfortunately, in, in politics, we don't, don't understand each other. Hungary is criticized for loads of matters, the freedom of the press, um, EPC, EPC, there were loads and loads of uh, problems. And when Trump became the president, by the way, in that speech when Viktor Orban said that uh, Hungary is going to be an illegal state, he also endorsed Trump before everyone else, he was the first one. This was a triumphant moment for, for long, long months in the Hungarian press, um, the pro-government president, Viktor Orban, told you, told you so, why didn't you listen to the master? So um, he, he, he thought and uh, everybody thought in the government that the relations are going to change with pre President Trump. And uh, no, it, it actually did. So it's, it's basically the same. Pompeo just visited in February and we needed to promise a quite large amount of money for some kind of helicopters just to just to get into terms. Probably this helped to to 
for this visit to happen. Um, and Trump obviously just told everyone that her friend is Victor Orban, which was not necessarily a good thing, but it is what it is. Trump just says things like that. So, um, yes, we are playing to, to both sides, obviously. Hungary is still a NATO ally, but that doesn't mean that we are not tied to Russia's heart. Which you either see or not. And this is why I'm trying to tell them it must be seen in the West as well, in the UK, that this is a problem. And this is going to be a mounting problem. This is not going to just go away in the next couple of years. This is going to be here and it's going to stay. And this is the same alliance. So, uh, yeah. the strategic Russian intent, I think you said in your opening comments, um, is simply to sow discord, disunity, chaos. Yeah. So, backing lots of different narratives, uh, giving the men time, uh, and you've got this wave of disinformation yeah. and, and chaos coming out us, and we get useful idiots in the home countries amplifying, oh, maybe they've got a point there, and that's an interesting point of view, etc. From our side, we've got more or less one, two, maybe three focus narratives that we want to get behind and push forward. But you've got this wave of chaos. Yeah. How would you see or advise uh, communicators on this side of the equation to actually combat this wave of chaos? Um, I think if you're talking about Hungary, for example, but I think this is a, a regional aspect that you need to find the right uh, in Hungary opposition parties and the opposition leaders, those who can carry these messages and the right messaging. They are absolutely not professionals. So just to just to get them into the right mindset and to prepare them that they need to communicate these messages in the right way, and they need to get it through to the to the society and to. Uh, to the voters, that would be a massive difference right away. Um, we can see that there are grassroots movements in Hungary, those who are trying to build up from um, social media platforms and uh, trying to target mm -hmm. messages to the younger audience, those who are actually searching these sites. The only part is uh, based on, on voters who are getting older and older. So obviously the future is for the youngs. And uh, these grassroots parties and movements are just trying to keep up with this, but they are still amateurs compared to, to what they are facing. So yeah, you need to target the right, right people with the right, right package, not just a message, a package as well that you need to tell this and like this, because yes, then those three messages you're talking about will get through eventually for the younger generation. I would say that. Do you have any sense of how deeply these narratives resonate within the military organisation of these countries? Yes, of course. Obviously. Across um, the whole branch Um when we were talking about certain countries which except Poland, let's just face it, because the Polish army is really capable as well as I'm concerned that they are really good and they are re really well aware as well but the Czechs, Hungarians and the Slovaks and the tiny armies um, the structure is really 
how can I put it nicely? It's really outdated. And uh, with every ways and means, it's, it's still not there. It's not open-minded, it's not transparent. We have literally no idea what's going on inside of the MOD or let alone inside of, uh, of deployed soldiers. Yeah, you can target them easily with any, any kind of uh, problem because they are not gonna report in the first place. They wouldn't even uh, recognize that they were targeted. Yeah, there so, is no awareness. So recently, Sorry. I was uh, asked to speak at Finnevel, which is the EU or much wider European um, organization. And it was notable that on one of the talks, you should find the Italians talking about their close relationship and their interoperability with Hungary <coughs> and with um, Slovakia. Um, we thought he'd, he'd cracked it, he told everybody. Italian brigadier told everybody exactly how this worked and that they were fully interoperable. And then the Hungarian chief of staff said, We are not interoperable. We do what we want. Yep. And we work with who we want. Yep. And we're as likely to work with our Eastern neighbors as we are with the Italians. He closed this when we want to close it. It is useful for us for now. Um, it caused somewhat mayhem in the audience because the Italians were absolutely sure they were towing the party line, but um, the Hungarians were definitely not. <laughs> and it was very awesome. Oh, by the way, Hungary is a lovely country. Whatever <laughs> I just told you here, just visit. <clears throat> but Hungary is a lovely, lovely country, and Budapest is a beautiful city. Sorry. But, but uh, you know, it was obvious that there was tensions, in those eastern neighbours, enormous, enormous tensions in between, from everything. From the style of dress, yeah. which is still very much the style of dress of Red Army. Yeah, basically. And and through to attitudes, which were very much kind of Eastern looking, looking at the Big Brother to the East as being the, the kind of place that was going to give them their, their input. It was an absolutely fascinating um, uh, meeting. Any more questions? What? You hope, well, sorry, what would you think Russia's ideal outcome would be with the four countries? Would it be like a little bit of a big brother relationship or more of a parent-child relationship by Russia says you do this and they go off and do it? Uh, the latter one. <laughs> they have a really good uh, uh, grab of, uh, of this history yeah. help, help them really well. Um, we know how Russia operated or the Soviet Union operated in Britain back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, so they, they know exactly how they can run these countries without any problem, by the way. There is no no big brother relation. It was just, we are telling you and you are jumping and you are doing things and that's it. No, it's not. No, 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 no. it's in, yeah, know, I do, I what, what was there, sort of, what is there, is it just to create cushion from no, sort of no, no. Europe or is it support domination in the area? Yeah, support so domination in the area, domination. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they want. Anyone else? Uh, one more. In terms of the West's apparent inability to combat this narrative, is this down to failing to prioritise it, or is it down to a lack of resource or some form of disorganisation and inability to come up with a concerted, unified approach? I think it's uh, mostly for 
first of all, national foreign policy matters, which is obviously different, for example, for the UK. We are concentrating in the Baltics and in the Balkans if it comes to Russian disinformation and fake news campaigns and in every other matter, which is understandable. Um, secondly, um, I'm not saying I'm not a pioneer here. I'm not the only one who is studying uh, in the UK and in Western societies and in the EU that this is a problem. Please be aware. Please be aware. Please be aware. There are loads of others. For example, uh, there is a Czech gentleman called, called Jakub Janda who is running Kremlin Watch. If you ever feel the time and feel the need to check what disinformation campaign is running by the Russians in each country, then I, I highly recommend Kremlin Watch because they are following it and they are investigating. Um, who keeps telling uh, in EU level, in national level, that this is a serious problem in the region and we must concentrate on, on this problem because it's just going to be, as I told you, mountaining. It's not going to get them. It's not going to go away. Um, I would say there is a lack of, of appetite for for these countries, mostly because they are already part of the EU, mostly because everybody thinks that, oh, Estonia is a lot vulnerable, which is probably right. Estonia is a lot more vulnerable because of the Russian minority and uh, the, I don't know, the Varna, 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 I never know, Navra, Navra scenario. Sorry about this. Um, so... Yes, I would say that it's just a simple, simple foreign policy uh, problem in the first place. In the second place, obviously, Russia is operating in the European Union as well, in every level. So there are friends who are trying to distort this information in the right time, in the right place. And let's just face it, the V4 region is not that important. We are already in the EU, we are already in the NATO, we can deal with our own, own problems and with our own shit. Again, sorry for the language. But yeah, that's that's a that's an issue. Any more please? No, in which case, uh big yeah. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.